Thank you, Luke, and everyone for the very warm welcome. It's an honor uh, to be with you today. We have been looking forward to this for, for months, and the day is uh, the day's here. Let me introduce my family to you with a picture. My wife, Amy, we celebrated 25 years of marriage this past summer. Praise God for that. And as Luke said, we've got seven blessings in our life. Um, four boys, three girls, 22 to 6. Ray and Rush, ages 10 and 6, are here with me. They're my ministry partners this weekend. We just spent uh, two days together doing a parenting and grandparenting conference down in Fresno, and now today uh, with you. So seven children, uh, lots of blessings, lots of happiness, lots of problems, daily, daily problems. You know, you put yourself in my shoes for a second, living with eight sinful people. It's very difficult. And uh, now, technically, there would be nine sinners in the family with me as sinner-in-chief, but I prefer to focus on their problems. Amen? Um, let me give you a bit about my spiritual background, because it's going to tie into what we're going to talk about today. I was born in Connecticut, and when I was born, neither one of my parents were Christians. Didn't come from any kind of spiritual Christian background or legacy at all. My father was my mother's second husband. My mother was my father's fourth wife, and it was when I was three months old that my parents' marriage was falling apart, and God worked a miracle in my mother's life and brought her to repentance of her sins and faith in Christ, and the Bible says she was born again. So when I was a baby, I got a new mom, and we started doing crazy religious stuff, started praying before we ate. Mom started going to church. Mom got involved in like women's ministry stuff and women's ministry conferences. And I'm the six-year-old boy, and she's bringing me to all the women's ministry conventions and creepy things like that. But uh, my mom led me to the Lord when I was a little boy, led my brother to the Lord when he was little. My dad was an atheist, he was a secularist, and he thought that when my mom became a Jesus follower that she had become a Jesus crazy person. And so he sort of doubled down on his atheism and his secularism, and he, uh, my parents divorced when I was 15. They were married 18 years. The straws that broke the camel's back on the divorce were my dad had, he traveled for business and had mistresses in different cities where he traveled, and that brought my parents' marriage to an end. And that became the big, the big wound and trauma of my life, my dad's bad behavior and my parents' divorce took God many years of bringing me to a place of forgiveness for, for what my dad had done. Fast forwarding my dad's part of the story a little bit, my dad died September 3rd, 2008, uh, a little more than 10 years ago at the age of 90. Three weeks before he died, August 10th, 2008, God worked a miracle in his heart, brought him to repentance of sins and faith in Christ. And he was, he was radically converted. I've never seen anything like it. The conversion of my father at the age of 90. How many of you have a family member you've been praying for forever for them to come to Christ? Okay, listen. If God can save my dad, he can save whoever you're praying for. It's easy, cheesy, lemon squeezy for him, okay? Trust me on this. I wish I could tell you my whole dad's story today. But, but we don't stop praying because we're not talking to the wall when we're praying, even though it's been decades of praying for that loved one. And we don't stop sharing the gospel as God gives us opportunity because the Bible says that the gospel message is the power of God. Anybody know that verse? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Going into my story a bit, 2004 was a major turning point in my life. Amy and I were married 10 years. We had four-ish children at the time. I really have no idea. Uh, <clears throat> 
But I was a youth pastor for those first 10 years, and as a youth pastor, number one passion of my life is passing my faith to other people's children. So let's say you're the parents and grandparents at Wheaton Bible Church outside Chicago. I'm going to pray with your kids. I'm going to read the Bible with your kids. I'm going to take your kids on retreats and mission trips. I'm going to do lock-ins with your junior hires. That's a horrible idea. The name itself, lock-in, should just, it's a bad thing. What is anybody doing with those things? But I'm doing all this to raise your hand if you remember lock-ins. Come on, give me, there you go. All right. You're like, that oh, was terrible. Okay. I'm doing all this stuff because I love the next generation and I want them to see them follow Jesus. The problem was I'm praying with other people's kids and I'm not praying with mine. I'm reading the Bible with other people's kids. I'm not reading the Bible with mine. I was a spiritual leader at church and spiritually passive in my house. And that summer, God brought me to such a place of repentance and brokenness. And as it says in Malachi 4 and Luke 1, I'm going to show you that in a minute, turned my heart to the ministry of my family and convicted me that here's what I had been doing. I had been putting my spiritual opportunities, that'd be all you folks, in front of my spiritual responsibilities. Those are the souls that God had entrusted to my care. So for the last 15 years, our family's been on a journey of what does it mean to live for Christ in the hardest and most important place to be a Christian? What does it mean to live for Christ in the hardest and most important place to be a Christian? Where's that? At home when that door closes. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to do a power walk through the Bible. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and, and the hospitality, by the way, has been wonderful. We're staying back here, and I don't know what you call it, the little house? What? The cottage, yes, yes. We're staying back here in the cottage, the gift basket. I mean, it is unbelievable. And one of the things, you know, as you have the blessing of sometimes of being a guest uh, preacher, and uh, they, they kind of say, you know, normally we wrap up the service around noon, but you just feel free to go. You know, one, two, three, whatever the folks need, you just go. So, no, I'll stick with the normal time. But, um, but I am going uh, uh, to do a power walk through the Bible. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to go through as much of the Bible as I can in the time that I've got to show you that God connects two things over and over and over again in His Word, and I think it's two things that we've lost track of. Here are the two things that I'm going to show you that God connects over and over again. He connects your family, and when I say your family, I mean your messed up family, my messed up family, your relationship with your parents if they're living, siblings if you've got them, spouse if you're married, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews. You know that whole big mess I'm talking about, okay? God connects that, your family, with His plan to reach the world for Christ. He connects the home with the advance of the gospel. And that's what I want to show you. So, sit up straight, take a deep breath. We're going to move fast. How many of you, when pastor says, today I'll be preaching from Luke chapter 18, you open your Bible or you turn your Bible on to track along? How many of you do that? That's very spiritual. That's good. Um, I'm going to be doing about 15 different scriptures. So I'd love for you to track along. Good luck. Uh, You can do it. I'm going to have them all up on the screen for you, and and we'll we'll do it together. But here we go. Uh, We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God makes a man, God makes a woman, and then God speaks to the couple that He has created. Does anybody know the very first words of God to the first couple? If you know them, shout them out. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be asking you a bunch of questions. Go ahead and, and shout out the answer. If you're wrong, I'll tell you in front of everybody. It's no big deal. We're all friends here. 
First words of God to the couple he creates. Anybody know? There it is. Be fruitful. God, this is Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. One of the questions I ask pastors in our family training ministry is, when was the last time you preached on God's first words to the first couple? And I've had some pastors say, I can't even remember the last time I preached on that. And, and I, th- I find that just a little curious from the standpoint that you would think that God's first words are pretty important. A pretty big deal. And in fact, they're extremely important. God tells Adam and Eve what he, God, is going to do for the rest of history. You know what God is doing? He's filling this earth with his people, with his word, with his worship, with his glory, so that the new earth will be filled with his people. But how's the earth going to get filled with people? He only made two. Well, he made male, he made female. He made marriage. He made sex. He made babies. What's God want? He wants one generation to raise another generation to raise another generation through the power of the family to fill the earth with His people. But you go forward in the biblical history to the Noah account, you find the earth's not filled with worship. It's filled with what? Filled with sin and wickedness. Look at this, Genesis 6-5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the the most wicked time of human history, never to be repeated again. So wicked, in fact, that God in his sovereignty begins again. He doesn't begin again with a righteous man, Noah. He begins again with a righteous family, Noah, his wife, three sons, three wives. God saves them through the flood. They step off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Fill the earth. Do you think God wants something? What does he want? He wants the earth filled with his people. Now, when, when we had our first son, our W, we, um, we decorated his nursery with the, the Noah's ark theme, and the rainbow and the boat and the animals and the clouds and the scriptures and stuff. Now, we, we take the Bible very seriously, and so we did the whole thing. But down around the bottom is the, the land and the deluge and the floating bodies coming up around the bottom of the room. And, and we said, we, we have picked a, a, a history from Scripture that's really just about the wrath of God against sin where He wipes everybody out, and we want this to comfort you while you sleep at night. Now, we didn't do that part because we really didn't think it through. It's, it's not a very, well, all the church nurseries are all Noah's Ark stuff. It's not a happy story, friends. Okay, I mean, we've got the animals and the rainbow. I like that part, but okay, where am I at? Okay, um, okay this is a bonus. Some of you are following along on the outline. Uh, some of you are like very outline focused. This one's not on the outline. Uh, you get to the next account, the Tower of Babel. Two great sins at the Tower of Babel, but we only talk about one of them. One is we're going to build a tower to the heavens so that we will be like God. That's the sin of what? Sin of pride. And we will not be scattered over the face of the earth. What did God say? Fill the earth. What did they say? We're staying put. All right, let's talk about Abraham. 4,000 years ago, God comes to a man named Abram, Abraham and says, Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. You're going to have a global ministry. 
Now, 4,000 years ago, how in the world do you even conceptualize of a global ministry? Today, we can think about that. We can put pastor on an airplane, fly him around the world to preach the gospel. We can put something on the internet, send it around the world. 4,000 years ago, how could Abraham even conceive of what God was telling him? Let me show you. This is Genesis 18, 18. God comes to Abraham and he says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations on earth shall be blessed in him. Now, how is that going to work? Look what God says. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken to him. Abraham, I'm going to use you to impact the whole world, and if you want to be a part of the mission, lead your family. Your primary mission, Abraham, is to pass faith in me to the coming generations. Because reaching the world with the gospel is not just an individual assignment. We have individual roles to play, but it's not an individual mission. It's a multi-generational mission. We've got one book of the Bible down, book of Genesis. How many books to go? 65. Right on track for that one-ish dismissal. Let's talk about the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Ten commandments. First four commandments are vertical, and that they have to do with the proper worship of God. The last six commandments are horizontal, and that they have to do with the proper relationship with people. That makes the fifth commandment the first commandment for human relationships. You got that? First four commandments horizontal, next six vertical, or first four vertical, next six horizontal. I'm even confused. Fifth commandment, first commandment for human relationships. Anybody know the fifth commandment? Honor and thy father and thy mother, here it is, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now, God put these commandments in a very particular order. Frankly, I find the order surprising. He first talks about how to worship him properly. Okay, so far, so good. Now he's going to talk to the folks about how to get along. If it were me, I'd be like, don't murder anybody. And we're going to start there, and I'm going to give you more advanced skills as we go forward. But he said, no, first one, honor thy father and their mother. Why? Why would this be first? I believe it's because it's the first moral decision a human being faces in their life. First moral decision a human being faces in their life. I've got my six-year-old boy down here. Rush, do not commit adultery. I'm not sure he really has to be paying much attention to that one right now. Right? How about this? Honor your mother. You think he's dealing with that one? Honor your father? Absolutely. First moral decision a human being faces in their life. Now, i got to confess, for a lot of years I had a really hard time with the second part of this verse. So I'm youth pastor, and got a room full of students, and we're going to talk about honoring parents. First part, okay. Heart attitude of honor and respect and all those things. But the second part of the verse, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And, and the Apostle Paul says this is a promise, first commandment with a, a, a promise. Kind of sounds like what God says is that if you honor your parents, you're going to live a long time. So can I stand in front of a group of young people and say if you honor your parents, God says you're going to live 70, 80, 90 years? That doesn't sound quite right, does it? It's Rebecca, right? You're shaking your... Is that right? Do I remember your name? Okay, good. She's like, no, that's not right. Yeah, because... You know, the, we, if a child dies of, of accident or illness, right, we, we don't say, well, they didn't honor their parents then, because the Bible says, if you honor your parents, you live a long time. So I didn't quite know what that meant. So the way I would always do it with students is this, honor your father and your mother, 
And if you obey God and honor your father and mother, God promises he's going to bless you. Now, that's not what it says, but I don't know what that means. So I'm just going to fuzzy it up and make it nice, okay? So I had to have a, a pastor friend give me the key to unlock the promise of the fifth commandment. He said, here's the key. The key to unlock the promise of the fifth commandment is to understand that the Ten Commandments are not just given to individual people and that some of the, the Y-O-U's or the these in the Ten Commandments are plural Y-O-U's and plural these, especially in the preamble and the postamble. And here's the spirit, therefore, in the promise of the fifth commandment, that if moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas will follow God and their children will honor their parents in the most important way of all, which is by receiving the faith that's passed to them, by following in their parents' footsteps of faith, then the people of God, the faith community, or in New Testament terms, the church of Jesus Christ will live long in the land. Guaranteed. Lock-tight promise from God. What can stop your church if by the grace of God you win the souls of your kids and grandkids to Jesus? What can stop that church? Nothing. Because of the power of multi-generational faithfulness. And friends, Satan and the demons totally understand what I'm sharing with you today. Which is why they put so much of their firepower against the passing of the faith from one generation to the next. So much of their firepower. This is why two-thirds, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, two-thirds of empty nesters in the church today have at least one adult child far from God. You hear that? Two-thirds of empty nest parents in the church have at least one adult child far from God. And part of my message for you today is that it's never too late, never too late, never too late for God to use you. I was preaching in Russia a few years ago, and they were telling me about the communist takeover of, of Russia in the early 20th century. And they explained, it was very fascinating, they explained, you know, the first thing the communists did was not to blow up the churches or make the churches illegal. First law they passed was that we could no longer bring our children to church. You see, you, you uh, kooky, crazy Christians, you can keep going to your cultic, religious thing. Your children will be communists. Your children will be atheists. They had a multi-generational vision, an evil one. But a multi, I can guarantee you Satan's got a multi-generational vision and a multi-generational plan. And my burden is in the 20th century in the West, we lost the Christian multi-generational vision for the gospel. Let's talk about the book of Deuteronomy. If you were with me in the Sunday school class, we, we spent some time talking about this, but this is a big one. Jesus is asked in the New Testament, what's the most important commandment in the Bible? He says, Deuteronomy 6.5. No, he didn't say Deuteronomy 6.5. He just quoted it. We call it the great commandment. If you've been around church, it's familiar to you. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Two foundations of your Christian life, love for God, love for His Word. And then what God does here in this most important commandment, He goes on then to speak to parents he goes on then to speak to grandparents. Look what he says. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. In other words, hey, if you want to love me, mission number one, help the kids love me. If you want my word in your heart, mission number one is help the kids and grandkids have my word in their heart. Now, how many of you are here? It's the desire of your heart to love God. You fall short every day, but you really want to love him. All right, good. How many of it's, you're here, it's the desire of your heart that the kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews would love God? 
All right, so far, so good, right? Lord, I like what you've given me so far. I want to love you. I fall short every day. Thank you for Jesus. I want the next generation to love you. In fact, I want them to love you more than I love you. Amen? I want there to be generational progress in our family. But God, I got a, a question for you. Okay, I want to love you. I want them to love you. But, but how do I do it? What, what would I do? Now, we know that there's no magic formulas. There's no guarantees. There's no do one, two, three, and all your kids and grandkids will follow Jesus. But in the very next verse, God gives his people something concrete, specific, and practical he wants them to do. Look at this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Okay, God, where do I start? What could I do? And you shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. Look, love God with all your heart. Open his book at home with your family. Down through the centuries, this has been called family worship. We spent an hour just before church talking about how can we pray and read the Bible at home without killing each other. That was the Sunday school hour this morning. A lot of our resources out there at our ministry table can help you do that. But I want to read for you um, how, how Christians in the past have talked about family worship perhaps differently than, than we have. I want to read to you from um, the, the, what's called the Directory for Family Worship, a training in family worship class that Christians in Scotland offered in 1640. 1640. Take a look at this. I'm going to translate the Old English as needed. The assembly requires and appoints ministers to make diligent search and inquiry, whether there be among them a family or families which neglect the duty of family worship. Translation. Pastors from your house, pastors from your church are regularly going to visit your house to make sure you're praying and reading the Bible with the kids. How would you like that? If such a family's found not praying and reading the Bible at home, the head of the family is to be admonished privately to amend his fault. Sir, what's your name right here? Next to the lady in the blue. The, yeah. Jason. Okay. Jason? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to pick on you. So, pastor says, Jason, you've got to be praying and reading the Bible with the kids. Oh, yes, pastor. Absolutely. In case of his continuing therein, still not praying and reading the Bible with the kids. He's to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session. That'd be like the elders and the deacons of the church. Jason, you've got to be praying and reading the Bible with your kids. Oh, yes, session. I'm going to start right away. After which reproof, if he's still found to neglect family worship, let him be for his obstinacy in such an offense, suspended and debarred from the Lord's Supper until he amend. Brother Jason, you, you can't take communion this week. You're under the discipline of the church. You've got to be praying and reading the Bible at home with your kids. Now we say, whoa, 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 time out. Church discipline? We don't do that for anything. And they're doing this for a lack of family worship in the home. Let me explain to you why they, how they did this, why they did this. These churches were radically committed to the global advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed that the gospel began with the souls of the little ones. They believed that the little ones were entrusted to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa in the home. And God called mom and dad and grandma and grandpa in the home to pray and read the Bible with their children in the home. Joshua 24, Deuteronomy 6, Genesis 18, Psalm 78, Ephesians chapter 6, Acts chapter 2. So in order to reach the world for Christ... We had to have the Bibles open in our homes. They connected what happened in each bumbling, stumbling family with the global advance of the gospel. And they said, if you're not going to have the Bible open in your homes, if you're not going to pray in your homes, maybe you're not on board with the mission of the church. Do you see that? 
And this is the connection that we've lost. Okay, let's fast forward. Let's go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the Italian prophet. You're like, I think it's Malachi. Yeah, okay. I like Malachi. Last words of the Old Testament, 400 B.C. 400 B.C., no more revelation from God for 400 years, is what God says. Remember ye the law of, my serv- of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The end. For my Jewish friends at home, they have maps next. Come on, that's a really good joke. Do you understand? They're reading their Bible and they flip the next page and it's maps. You guys are terrible. Okay. This is a really bad ending. It's just a bad, I mean, that's it? God's going to come strike the land with a curse? Okay, it, it, it begs for, for more. But you see, here's what happened. The Holy Spirit, through Malachi, says the time's going to come when the Holy Spirit's going to work in such a way as to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, and God's system of blessing His people is tied to this heart connection, this spiritual connection between fathers specifically and parents principally and their children. Now, here's something that blew me away. One of my mentors, Richard Ross from Southwestern Seminary, showed me that this is exactly how the Old Testament ends, and it's exactly the way the New Testament begins. The link between the Testaments is the turning of the father's heart, the grandfather's heart, to his children. Let me show it to you. I want you to imagine that you're going to make a movie of the New Testament And every event in the New Testament is in your movie. What is the first scene of your movie? Come on. First event of the New Testament. Shout it out. John the Baptist. Hey, warmer, warmer. Pretty good. Birth of Christ. Thank you for participating. Colder, colder. Let's go back to John the Baptist. Forerunner, forerunner. Yes? Zachariah. Okay, here's your movie, right? Black screen, lights go up, old man Zachariah, and an angel appears to him, Gabriel. And the words of the angel Gabriel are the first words of divine revelation from God since Malachi chapter 4. We have 400 years. We have, we have no new scripture, no new divine revelation. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut the 400 years out okay, and show you the connection. So 400 years before Gabriel shows up to talk to Zechariah, who's married to Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John, God says this, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. Then the angel says this to Zechariah, many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. He's talking about John now growing in Elizabeth's womb. And he shall go on before him in the spirit and the power of Elias, Elijah. Does that sound familiar? All right, God's picking up where he left off. And what's John the Baptist going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just in order to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
If you've been around church, you know God sent John to get the hearts of people ready for Jesus. He did it two ways. We only talk about one. One, he pleaded with people to turn from disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous. Repent of your sins. But the other thing he did is he pleaded with fathers to turn their hearts to their children. Now, what does that have to do with getting people ready for Jesus? The first one makes sense. Uh, repent and all oh, that. That sounds pretty churchy. That's, that's good. But what is this turn, calling fathers to turn their hearts to their kids? Here's what it's about. When the hearts of parents are turned to their kids, when the hearts of parents are burdened for their kids spiritually, when the hearts of kids are turned to their parents, everybody's heart is soft and turned toward Father God who's seeking to express His love for us through His Son Jesus. But when the hearts of parents are hard to the kids, hearts of kids hard to the parents, everybody's heart's also hard toward whom? Father God seeking to express His love for us through His Son, Jesus. So how many of you are here and you want the hearts of your kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews prepared for Messiah? You want their hearts prepared for Messiah? Ask God to turn your heart to them. Ask God to make it the number one mission of your life to help your children and grandchildren safely home to their Father in heaven. That's what it means to have your heart turned to them. I've had so many conversations lately. I have a parent come to me and say that their adult child is um, uh, trapped in um, a same-sex relationship or, or something like that, and they'll be in tears. And often what I'll say, and they don't expect me to say it, but I say, I'm glad you're crying. And I don't mean I'm glad you're sad, but I'm just glad you're burdened. Because I talk to some other parents who aren't. That burden means your heart's turned to them. It means you love them means you're in hot pursuit. You want to care for them. You haven't given up on them with the grace and the mercy of God. Let's talk about the ministry of Jesus for just a moment as it relates to this subject. By the way, does anybody know the first person that recognized Jesus as Messiah come to earth? First person in Jesus' earthly ministry that recognized Jesus, first person to recognize Him as Messiah. Anybody know? Anna? Close. Ding, 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 ding. John the Baptist, in the womb. You remember? Jesus walks in the room. Well, Mary walks in the room. Jesus is riding along in Mary's womb. And John in the womb of Elizabeth, remember what he does? Leaps for joy because his Savior's here. Boy, what a critical issue for God's people right now, friends. Let's be bold. Let's be brave. Let's do what God's calling us to do to save those little ones. All right. Let's talk about the ministry of Jesus. How many of you have ever seen a picture of Jesus and the little children? Hmm? It's always watercolor. I don't know why. And it's in church bathrooms a lot. I don't know why, but you know that's true. Here, let me tell you what really happened. They brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, love the KJV there, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Pastor, I need you to do a quick uh, theology check for me, make sure I'm not going off course. Jesus is a single man. He's not married, correct? And he also does not have any biological children. Okay, thank you. Double checking. 
Um, so Jesus is a single man, no biological children, and where's his heart? Children. This message I'm sharing with you today about the multi-generational gospel, this is not just for mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. This is all hands on deck. All God's people should have Christ's heart for the little ones in our sphere of influence. I've talked to some folks. They tend to be on the older side. I guess I'm on the older side now. Uh, I had my daughter on my shoulders the other day, and she said, Dad, you have a lot of gray hair up here. I'm like, well, sweetheart, I mean, I'm, I'm getting older. She said, when was the last time you were up here? <laughs> but I, oh, sidetracked. Um, I, I've just had some folks say to me, church folks, they say, you know, I don't like kids very much. To which I have said, Repent. What an unchristlike heart. Now listen, you, you may say I'm not very good with kids. That's fine. But to say you don't like them, right? That's not the heart of our Savior, is it? Now I want you to notice something else here. There's a very unusual word. Uh, okay, you, you know Jesus and the little children in the watercolor picture, he's smiling. Okay, because he had to hold that for a long time for the painter, the, the guy who's painting that, to do that. But, but the Bible actually tells us his emotions here Uh, What are his emotions toward the disciples? He was what? Much displeased. Yes. The, the, uh, The root word under there is the word indignant. Indignant. Now, again, outline friends. I'm going to take a tangent because I want to. Uh, This word is very unusual. Uh, And it's the next time we see this word indignant. Again, Jesus is indignant that the children are being kept away from him. The next time we find the word is the day after Palm Sunday. Jesus comes in, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, Hosanna to the Son of David. The next day, he begins his How to Win Friends and Influence People tour. Uh, What does he do next? Goes into the temple and tears it apart, right? Turns over the table, the money changes, things like that. Now, you would think that the Pharisees at this point are unhappy, much displeased, but they're not mentioned at this point. The next thing that happens is the blind and the lame come into the temple courts, and Jesus heals them all. Now, this was a violation of Old Testament law. In order to come into the temple courts, you had to be physically perfect. You could not have blemishes or disabilities or things like that. Now, in our day, we look at that as a horrible thing. In other words, that a person with a disability could not come into worship, but it was a gospel message. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only he with clean hands and a pure heart, only the perfect person can come into the presence of God. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? We need a Savior from heaven, and we need forgiveness. But So the blind and the lame come in, and again, I'm sure the Pharisees are ticked off, but no mention of them. Then the children come in. And they begin to sing to Jesus. And at this point, the Scripture says, the Pharisees were much displeased. Same word, they were indignant. Now notice, Jesus is indignant the kids are being kept away. The Pharisees are indignant that the kids are coming in. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, do you hear what these little ones are saying? And he says, yes. Have you not read that God has ordained praise from infants and babes? Now, I was preaching in Malaysia. I was sharing this connection. Pastor Herbert says, Rob, have you ever gone to the Old Testament to see the Scripture Jesus is quoting? I said, no. He said, you should. I said, I will. Pastor Herbert said, because in the Old Testament, it tells you why God calls forth praise from children. That's an interesting question, isn't it? 
You've heard that before, right? God calls forth, ordains praise from children and infants. What would be your theory? What would be your, your theory? Why does God call forth praise from children? Why does God like it? Take a, take a stab at it. Oh, yeah, okay, innocence, uh, tying to this idea of a, a childlike faith, that would be fair. Okay, I think that's the first thing that, that comes to mind. But that's not right. Let me tell you, let me read it to you. Sorry, no slide, bonus material. It's Psalm chapter 8. It's going to blow you away. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have called forth praise because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. You want me to read that again? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've called forth praise because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, I can't explain to you how all this works, but what God says is that when children enter the realm of worshiping Jesus, they enter the realm of spiritual warfare, and it shuts the mouth of the devil and the demons. How many of you would like to shut the mouth of the devil and the demons in your house? How about you get the kids singing? How many of you want to fight the battle here in your church? Get the kids singing. All right, again, bonus material. That one blew me away. Okay, where am I at? All right, let's go to the book of Acts. I am uh, preparing to conclude, as they say in the South. Um, the New Testament church launched with this multi-generational vision. They launched with this multi-generational vision, this partnership between the church and the home to advance the gospel. Day of Pentecost. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. The followers of Jesus are together. It's not just the disciples. It's a, a larger group. Jesus' mother's there. Mary's there. Jesus' brothers are there. You know, Jesus, Mark chapter 4, Jesus had four brothers. They're named and at least two sisters. He was the oldest of at least seven. One of Jesus' brothers named James. You know James. James, the author of the book of James. He's a pastor in Jerusalem. I love thinking about James. James, James had to come to the point in his life where he became convinced that his big brother was God. Try that on for size. Remember, these aren't Bible people. They're people. Normal people, just like you and me. Now, you remember, remember Jesus' family had some struggles along the way, trying to understand exactly who he was. But okay, day of Pentecost. Uh, the Holy Spirit falls on the followers of Jesus. They go out preaching the gospel in different languages. Peter wraps it up with the church's first evangelistic sermon, and his first main point is God sent the Messiah, that was Jesus, and you killed him. That's his warm intro. The Holy Spirit works in their hearts, and they say, well, then what must we do to be saved? Peter said unto them, Acts 2.38, repent be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Folks, there it is again. This is the threefold move of the gospel cover to cover in the Bible. You, your kids in the world. You, your kids in the world. You, your kids in the world. But in lots of churches, friends, we've cut the middle piece out. So point one of the sermon is get right with God through Christ. Point two of the sermon is please volunteer in one of our ministries. Please go do something good for Jesus. That's great. I like all of that. 
but we cut the middle piece out. Get right with God through Christ. Now, honor your parents. Are you a married person? Your spouse is your most important gospel ministry for Jesus. You have children or grandchildren? Go and make disciples. God's entrusted souls to your care. And now as a family, would you please volunteer in one of our ministries? As a family, would you please go do some good? You see what happens? You, you cut out the biblical methodology of the advance of the gospel. You see, God created the church and the home like, like two pedals on a bike to, to partner together for the advance of the gospel in the world. 20th century Western church, we took our foot off the family pedal and we're pedaling the church pedal. Harder, faster than ever before, getting exhausted and not making much progress. So what God's doing all over the world right now is He's awakening His church to the New Testament gospel model of the partnership of the church and the home. And in fact, the church, this is a big theological issue that I'm going to do in 15 seconds, has a jurisdictional responsibility to equip the home for spiritual success. Ephesians 4.12, the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for works of ministry. Well, is being a husband a ministry? Is being a wife a ministry? You better believe it is. And it's not easy. So what does the church have to do? It's got to equip us for success. Is being a Christian grandparent a ministry? Absolutely. So the church has got to equip us for disciple-making in the home. That's why, if, you know, many of you, this would be your home church here at the home church. You are blessed to be a part of a church that's got this vision of the home and church partnering together to advance the gospel. One more scripture. Third John, verse 4. John, based upon the early church history we have, uh, was not married, did not have children of his own, single man. Most of the other disciples were married with children, but, uh, but John was not. So John writes this. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. G John is speaking of his spiritual children, people he's led to the Lord and discipled, but, but boy, what a principle for parents and grandparents. No greater joy than when our kids are walking with the Lord. But the flip side's true. No greater sorrow when our kids are far from God. And we come to church, and we see all these happy families, people who have it all together, you know, seven generations of missionaries sitting right over here. Now, let's do a little exercise with me. I want you to look at the perfect people sitting on this side of you. Turn your head and look at them. Look at they're beautiful. They're, they just have it all together. Now I want you to look at these perfect people over here. Come on. They're, not look, they're looking at the wall. Just look at them. They're amazing. Look, they're so beautiful. Everybody look back at me right now. Your family is the only messed up family here. You just need to know that. I mean, you're surrounded by perfect people who have it all together. And I'm sorry for you. It's very difficult, but that's just the way it is. It's absurd, but this is the way the enemy worms its, its way in. And I just want to tell you, if you've got that, especially if you've got that son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter that's far from God, it's never too late, never too late, never too late, never too late for God to use you as mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, to point that child, that 50-year-old child, 25-year-old child to Christ. Out at our resource table, we have a whole bunch of stuff called Never Too Late. If that's your situation, you've got a prodigal family member, brother, sister, husband, wife, son, or daughter, please make sure that you take a look at that stuff. Now, having done this power walk through the Scriptures today, does it make more sense to you now why Satan and the demons attack your family so ferociously? Because what happens in your little home with all these relationships, is directly tied to the advance of the gospel. And Satan and the demons strike the base. Almost all of the 
major conflicts in the church and culture today are Genesis 1, 2, 3 attacks. God didn't create the world. There is no such thing as male, female, marriage, sexuality is blown to bits. What are all those? Those are all Genesis 1, 2, 3 issues. Oh, and by the way, we're good people, not sinners. That's Genesis 3. So almost all of them are base-striking attacks. And so what I'd like us to do, if, if it makes more sense to you now why there's so much spiritual attack against your family relationships, I'd like to lead us into a time of guided prayer, okay? So let's, let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Now, I want to invite some of you. Some of you may want to come up front and, and pray during this time. Some of you may want to just pray with someone else, okay? There'll be pastors and folks from church that'll be available to, to pray with you. Um, but I either want you to be praying in your seat or I want you to be coming up for prayer. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. The first area of prayer is this. Is there a marriage in your family that needs a miracle?